Welcome to this special series of Moneyball Medicine focused on AI, machine learning, and analytics applied to drug discovery and development. This special series was recorded as part of the AI Application Summit produced by Corey Lane Partners this October in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Harry Glorikian. In this series, I will interview different speakers from the event and we will hear their experiences. We will dive into the challenges and opportunities they're facing and their predictions for years to come. Welcome to Moneyball Medicine. My next guest likes to say that data is nothing new, that it has been around for years, that Big Pharma has been really good at accumulating more and more of it, but that there's never been an actual business design behind how and why they accumulate this data. Particularly in healthcare today, they are still often focused on the same questions they've been trying to answer for the last 25 years. He thinks the opportunity that we have today is really around being able to ask not only those fundamental questions, but perhaps asking questions of new data sources and looking at them in new environments that might shed a whole new light into the way in which pharma teams operate. But it doesn't stop there. Once you've gotten those pieces in play, how do you start using these new data sources to be able to ask those questions to uncover new insights that impact healthcare in ways that you may never have thought of before? Malin Kemkolkar is the Chief Data Officer of Sanofi Pharmaceuticals. Malin's focus is driving the transformation of Sanofi from a data generation organization to an augmented intelligent insight generating organization to empower the lives of patients and enrich the value Sanofi delivers to customers. Melinda is both an entrepreneur and entrepreneur and joined Sanofi from a career spanning big pharma, big and boutique consulting, and numerous technology and software startup companies focused on health, technology, and data. His relentless commitment to excellence has led to a multi-billion dollar impacts stemming from blending digital insights, partnership approaches across industry to solve complex human health problems at scale. Melinda is a sought after speaker, business transformation top 150 leader, and thought leader in digital health, AI, and big data. Melinda also serves as a board advisor and mentor to Humanity.co, Oxmazor, Carissium, and Robbie.ai. He is also honorary lecturer for physician entrepreneurship at Bart's X, faculty at Exponential Medicine, and a former special advisor to the UN Global Sustainability Program. Melind, welcome to the show. Thank you, Harry. So, Melind, what a phenomenal background you have. I mean, what all those experiences uh, and and both on the data side as well as in therapeutics. So, what drove you to these big pharma type uh, opportunities? No, it's it's a good question, uh, Harry. And honest with you, I've been thinking about that myself, if I look back on my graduate person first entering the job market to how on earth I got here, I can honestly say it was simply serendipity and the opportunity to experience new new experiences, new competencies, uh, desperately hungry for learning. And I think when I came to pharma, um, particularly after being in big consulting, tech startups, et cetera, it was really that opportunity of how do you take that entrepreneurship enthusiasm, the ability to wear multiple hats, and really apply that to more of an entrepreneurial model. Now, I often akin it to 
you know, uh, if you were the captain of the Titanic and you knew that you were going to hit the iceberg anyway, as an entrepreneur, what could you do to minimize damage? Because the reality is big pharma in so many ways is, is so desperate uh, in a good way for transformation, um, but are trying to find the best way in which to minimize their risk exposure to transformation, which is a very scary thing for them. So I see myself as that person who is captaining in many ways from a perspective of data and analytics, uh, the transformation required uh, to, in some cases, miss the iceberg uh, or in the best case or in the worst case scenario, minimize the damage from the iceberg. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, as you and I have talked offline also, I, I, I believe that there will be organizations that will adjust. I'm, I'm a little skeptical about transformation um, yeah. only because I, I, just by looking at it from a pure MBA strategy perspective, there are not very you know, many big companies yeah. that make it through the transformation. Um, uh, or they break up in, in in sort of interesting ways. So, you know, the 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 Titanic, you know, is an interesting analogy. But but tell me tell me a little bit. What is a chief data officer like? You, you know, I feel like you have a room full of boxes and there's data in all of them, and you're you manage what's in the boxes. What what is what is a chief data officer, and what do you do? Yes. Um, so look, um, I think I am the first official chief data officer at an enterprise level across the big pharma. Um, I know there's a lot of wonderful colleagues out there who are doing similar sorts of roles, either in functional assignments in R&D, for example, Mark Ramsey over at GSK. Uh, some of the folks at Lilly, for example, have now hired a chief data officer who's a terrific guy. Um, but you see, these roles are coming in at a point in time where it's almost as though pharma has recognized that their the core asset that they both produce and consume is data. Um, but for a long time, we've been horribly siloed uh, in ways that don't necessarily allow us to be transversal in many ways in the utility of that information, which is why you see horror stories of us purchasing the same data types over and over again. Uh, why you see uh, interoperability being a massive struggle uh, in many of these companies, and frankly, why analytics, and you find some very good folks either doing baseline analytics or biostatistics to perhaps slightly more relevant bioinformatics, cheminformatics work, but very little, frankly, machine learning work that's happening at scale. So when I think about the role that Sanofi asked me to take on, um, or, or what I think any chief data officer should be, I don't think it should be something that we have to reinvent. Uh, many other industries already have these roles, just reporting into different structures and lines. But I think my responsibility for a chief data officer is a couplefold. One is to help organize our information in a more effective way, including policies and procedures that ensure uh, compliance with things like GDPR, security with the appropriate uh, security measures in place in terms of treatment of data. Um, it also is requiring of me to help connect data across the organization. And I think this is where technology becomes a big accelerator in that area 
to be able to allow for more microservice-based development to be able to connect to downstream or upstream data sources. Um, what's also required is to help build a data catalog or the syntax of the company. And it's so interesting, you know, when you think about the number one question I got asked when I was doing uh, the rounds, if you will, when I first joined the company was, you know, we love the fact that there's a chief data officer, but you know what our number one problem is? Our number one problem is where is the data, <laughs> right? So the simple notion of producing and having a lot of data isn't necessarily the issue, but it's also just being able to know where it is. This is where we've leveraged principles or where I think one of the uh, key criteria of my job is to help create literally the FICO score for data, which is uh, fair data scores, findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. So again, bucketing into those three areas, one is uh, organizing data, which includes data lakes, uh, which includes uh, semantically appropriating the data through a data catalog, connecting the data through the appropriate data pipes, and last but not least is, of course, analyzing and engaging with data and providing the capabilities around that. Um, the analysis piece is literally for three different kinds of users, your pure play end user who just wants to see a report or receive an SMS or receive um, some diction if they engage with a speech-to-text interface or vice versa. You have data scientists on the high end, which are ranging anything from statisticians who, funnily enough, are calling themselves data scientists now. I don't think that's an appropriate term for them. But needless <laughs> to say, you do have folks in that area. Um, you know, but I, but then you also get into the true, true state data scientists, which often come with PhDs in machine learning, PhDs in natural language processing, and have a good background in also supercomputing and hypercomputing and running algorithms at scale. Um, the final area that I think is that you can have all those three components, right, around data management, data governance, and data analysis and onboarding. But the one key area that consistently, not just pharma makes a mistake on, but frankly, any company I've seen across the board is in data communications, or what I like to call a term, data journalism. This is the, the, the advent, if you will, that you have some brilliant, brilliant data scientists at Accenture who just unfortunately are hopeless in communicating what the value of that insight actually is. It starts with areas like uh, your dashboards. I can't tell you how much KPI puke I see consistently, how much metric <laughs> madness there is across yeah, the yeah. board, you know, uh, pie charts. I mean, someone should just eliminate that from the, from the whole charting capability altogether, right? I mean, we just don't communicate information in a way that's meaningful, and it's so funny I would argue that our prehistoric ancestors did a much better job in data visualization than we do today. You know, uh, when you look at a cave painting, you kind of know what's going on. When you look at a dashboard today, you will at least have 10 different interpretations given to 10 different people. So I really see my role is to help communicate the value of the asset that we produce and consume quite heavily in fact. Well, it, it, it's interesting that you say all this. I mean, I, 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 it, it almost seems like I don't want to say impossible task, but mm -hmm. to take to take something where the mold is cut yes. and try to adjust the mold is incredibly daunting. And and I think of Microsoft making a transition, but but yes. everybody there was a 
tech person, a data person for the most part, right? And so yeah. sort of transition is possible because you've already have a a tech data mindset, but in our world, trying to shift the uh, the mindset is is a daunting. It's, uh, I almost rather, as a venture guy, you almost rather start from scratch, so uh, you don't have some of these issues um, that are going on. And I'm sure that that poses a huge challenge for the things that you're trying to do. Uh, absolutely. Look, um, I think I've sort of reached, you know, certain conclusions, if you will, or and I hope I can really be proven wrong in this space. When I see companies looking for either chief digital or chief data officers or heads of digital, etc., um, there is obviously a visible difference between what functional area you're working in, whether it's in uh, R&D, medical, versus perhaps more the short-term gains in commercial. What I find there is both business folks are often talking more about technology and technologists, or let's call it IT folks, tend to be wanting to talk more about the business impact. And unfortunately, there's no translator in between many of those because the business folks sometimes get enamored with all the buzzword bingo that's out there on most uh, web pages and articles and clickbait-related information out there. And the technology folks, whilst they have a reasonably good idea of how to decipher or triage between the BS, uh, they often struggle with connecting to the business value of what the implementation of that technology is. So you end up with this cesspool of pilots that just keep going on and on and on. And the challenge with that is it's unfair to the tech startup community that you recognize can probably develop that capability far greater, far faster. You know, to your point, Harry, starting from scratch, better than you can do from a transformation perspective versus the folks internal to a company who understand how to make that adoption happen in many ways. Um, and I think we're at this interesting stage in, in most organizations where, you know, we've kind of gone past the second wave, if you will, of innovation, right? The first wave was simply recognizing that you needed to innovate or you needed to transform. The second wave was by hiring people with all these wonderful titles that don't look like traditional pharma. But if you see the attrition rates in almost every pharma and biotech company out there, it's no wonder that most of these people have a lifespan of two to three years because it's more often than not, they're, they're uh, the glorified cheerleaders that are being asked to help transfer or transform the company with very little capital investment or change management to go with that. So your best option is just, you know what, since I can't transform it that way, let me just partner with a whole bunch of startup companies and maybe that might change the mind. Sadly, that's not well, the way it works. You know, that's not the yeah, way Yeah, no. Now that brings me to another issue, which is, you know, we keep talking AI, machine learning, you know, all this sort of mm -hmm. stuff. But, you know, in the end, who cares how it gets done? <laughs> exactly. Right? Thank you for I saying mean, that, it, Harry. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's like just when I, when I push the button, does it do what I need it to do or, or, or doesn't it? I mean, you know, it's funny because yeah. you think about, you know, the graphical user interface on your iPhone or whatever. Uh -huh. Most people don't care how it does what it does as long as it does what they need. And so I, I feel like this buzzword of AI and machine learning is going to start sort of, I don't want to say fade. It is the tool that's yeah. being used, but that tool is going to morph and change over time. And it's, we're going to have 50 new names for it, I think. But 
you know, isn't the beauty of what you guys are doing that it's transparent or that it's transformational to the person that's using it and they're getting something out of it? Look, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is where I think, you know, the whole healthcare industry should take a page out of Amazon's approach to this. Uh, and in fact, in many great customer experience firms, because ultimately, you know, when you're building, delivering, servicing, however you want to call it, right, these capabilities, you have one goal and one goal early. That is to make create a compelling customer experience at the right part of that customer journey that is really, really convenient for that person to engage in, right? If convenience or customer-centric-based approaches aren't taken from the point of starting that project, the likelihood of that project going to scale or being leveraged or adopted is pretty minimal. And you can see numerous examples, right, of where this is happening. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be blockchain. It doesn't need to be machine learning. Sometimes Excel is perfectly fine, right, for solving a specific problem that you're trying to resolve. But I think the trick is more often than not, we have tended to almost be led by tech instead of figuring out what are the key questions we want to ask, what are the hypotheses we want to test, and then let's find the right fit that's appropriate to that. Um, it's, you know, I think in addition to that, you know, we've gone through, if you will, those industrial changes of, you know, the in-out, here-there models, right? In-source, outsource, do it here or do it, you know, offshore or nearshore. But I think we're missing two key components in that area too, which is around should we open source or crowdsource, right? Because the fact is, you don't have to pay a lot of money to get this work done, uh, either through leveraging open source algorithms, open source capabilities, when and where you need, and it, where it's appropriate, or if you're creating something, do it through a hackathon-based approach or a crowdsourced approach, so your large consulting fees aren't necessarily being deemed simply pressworthy stuff, right? And I think what we're seeing across the board now is so many press releases coming from everywhere that it's it's dizzying from the point to the point of creating nausea. Because I would really love to see companies that are doing this where it's impacting patients in more meaningful ways, not just because it's AI, not just because it's machine learning, or not just because it's big data. In fact, if you speak to most data professionals, they'll tell you all data is just data, whether it's big, small, fat, thick, wide, doesn't matter. You know, right. The hardest right. problems to solve are actually when you don't have enough data. Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, blockchain is the is the you know dream come true for consulting organizations, right? We can solve your issue with blockchain, and it's amazing yeah. to me. I mean, I, I it, every time I see blockchain, I just now I just wince because I'm like, I'm not so sure it's going to work in that dynamic. Um, yeah, but. So at you know at at this conference yeah. we've we've seen a number of different companies get up there and talk. I think you know <clears throat> there's a lot of interesting ones that we've we 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 saw um, that are you know going to be part of the series that that uh, we're doing. Uh, but how do you think? Because I I see the drug discovery side really changing with the advent of being able to look at many different factors at one time through these machine learning and AI systems, which I may see a pathway or I may see a target that I didn't see before, or I see something yeah. that 
is causing the disease uh, that I hadn't seen before. I mean, Joel Dudley's paper in June where, um, Mm -hmm. you know, herpes is a driver in Alzheimer's, right? Um, You know, it's it's almost like, look, throw all the data in and start having it drive outcomes. And I just see some of these companies moving much faster. Uh, yes. with 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 some incredibly interesting insights compared to big pharma um, and of course you know if they get the ip on it it sort of changed changes the uh, the inflection point of where value is okay. but i'm i'm curious to get your input on on what you see and the the pathway that that is that's flowing there yeah no it's a great question look i, I think one of the issues that challenges big pharma, particularly when we deal with data, is that uh, it's incredibly siloed, maybe from, you know, uh, the way in which you construct a business, right, uh, in this instance, it may have made sense in the past. And I say this in the past for a very specific reason, because if you're going to be a data-driven organization, the thing that data doesn't care about is which silo you belong in. Right? The thing that patients don't care about is which silo you've orchestrated your research in. Right? Likewise, in clinical development, and frankly, from commercial, uh, you know, the paper you pointed out is a prime example. And in fact, we're starting to see comorbidities, non-responders. These are the holy grails that we're really looking after. Right? What really are the unknown triggers that we are yet to evolve and understand? And I think if we, you know, if we bring in these um, business constructs of functional departments or therapeutic areas, the reality is, and even in the absence of uh, good science, or you're not giving yourself the chance to even explore those areas because it becomes very territorial, right? And that's the reality of the business, right? You create these silos, you create objectives and incentives around those silos. There's no real desire to actually share or work with data. In fact, I think one of the biggest issues that we see across pharma and biotech in some cases is the notion of data ownership in itself, right? Who owns customer data? Who owns product data? Who owns gene data? And when you start looking at it from that perspective, the ownership of that data actually drives the new incentive models that can be created to bypass these silos. So what you're really doing is having one data store in many ways, but allowing the silos to have multiple views of that same data. Um, this well, you, is where you, I'm, I'm incredible. Sorry, go ahead. No, you, you, you sound like you're talking about healthcare overall. It, <laughs> I mean, it is. You know, it is. Who owns is. lab data? Who owns this data? Yeah. Who owns that data? It's, it's the same I problem mean, that we've why. had in, in modern healthcare, right? I'm, you know, the, the, the N is so yeah. small in any one of these areas that, trying to come to a conclusion on anything is, is, is difficult and nobody wants to necessarily share. Exactly. But, you know, the way you get around that, though, is by leveraged, leveraging technology. Because now technology can get out of the politics of dictionary management and interoperability. Things like knowledge graph technologies that we've starting to see more and more advances in. Um, I'm loving, absolutely loving the role of natural language processing as it's being applied to a machine-learned knowledge graph. I mean, there are numerous companies working on this. Um, personally, I don't 
like I think that's going to be the advances that are going to be heavily democratized. I think whoever comes first to market in that space in a well-meaning way um, is going to be a leader to help drive and transform that part of the industry. But I think the struggle for most pharma companies in that instance is, you know, if you were a vendor who could do this, frankly, outside faster uh, or, or a startup company doing this, um, you're really going to have to think about how do I input that into an existing business workflow into the large pharma or biotech companies so that you can start capitalizing and recuperate your investment into the R&D that you've made in developing that. Because again, but, but, those algorithms... But Melinda, that, that's, that's where I... Yeah, but Melinda, that's where I get to. Every example that I've seen outside of our world, every yeah. case study, every group I talk to, mm -hmm. when they try yeah. to force it into the existing workflow, they never get out the maximum value. It's by that's stepping true. back and seeing what you can do with it and manipulating yeah. the workflow around it that you get to it. And I'm always concerned that the biggest yeah. transformations happen when a new business model is, yeah. it, you know, is put into place. And yeah. we see that with, with tech. I mean, Google and all these guys had, mm -hmm. had a completely different model and, you know, devastated the existing status quo. And so... Yeah. That's to me. Sometimes you almost have to poke the bear pretty hard to to, yes. to cause yeah. them to change. Um, yeah. But you know, what what do you think pharma biopharma look look like in the future to you? Oh wow! So let let's bucket into two two parts of an organization, right? There are those who will evolve, who have figured out how to do better things. Right. So these are the business model changes. These are the places that are looking truly delivering digital therapeutics, for example, right, uh, as a new P&L measure uh, with real P&L right behind it. Um, you, then you get those companies which are probably going to be, uh, at the risk of saying this, you know, glorified warehouses for pill manufacturing which are those folks who have capitalized on doing things better, right? which is simply operational efficiency. I think most companies are still in the operational efficiency play when you look at the ratio of the number of programs and projects they have in just getting baseline capabilities in play, right? Uh, versus those that are truly, ado truly adopting new capabilities, new models, and recognizing that, uh, you know, technology is a core competency of the new future business model. Um, so when I think about what we're doing, you know, what pharma companies are going to look like in the future, it's really going to be one of those two. And I think the future pharma company will not be a pharma company. It will be a company that's focusing on wellness management for specific key areas, like maternal health, like uh, pediatric health, like, um, you know, male health. They're not going to be so, companies that are focused on cardiovascular disease. Or so, so let me add one more thing there. Now let me insert the customer experience because mm -hmm. I'm thinking of this as, as we move towards adjudication, technology enabling a, a bi-directional information flow between different groups that the provider, mm -hmm. that the therapeutic company and the patient, there's a, I don't want to call it symbiotic, but 
there's yeah. a relationship there that needs to evolve and take place. So yes, call me, tell, tell me I'm crazy, you know, feel free to say that I'm, I'm, I'm not on the right track here, but, but I, those are the sorts of things that I think about. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I, I agree with you. You know, I, I think in that instance, you know, there's just, yeah, I mean, it's so difficult to say, you know, because, I mean, even if you look even in just the tech world, right, the fact that you're having copycats saying that, you know, uh, well, we're the new Uber of XYZ or we're the Amazon of XYZ probably already tells you that those business models in themselves are somewhat broken, right, that we have yet to see what the new digital operating model is going to look like. We've simply gone for, past the first iteration, if you will, of um, what new capital uh, generation looks like. I don't think we've hit the full spot yet. When I think about, you know, I mean, one, I had the privilege uh, of working with the UN Global Sustainability Team on the Global Sustainability Goals. And I remember on the, on the inaugural hackathon that we ran over at Cambridge Union, there were 17 different goals in the Global Sustainability Goal portfolio. But what we eventuated to were there are actually two key fundamental goals that if you solve those two from a customer experience standpoint, you pretty much addressed most of humanity's woes today. And those are better education and access uh, to information, and in parallel, delineating ignorance and access to health. Right? And if you were able to solve those two problems alone, which are very, very big problems alone, you've actually captured a vast majority of what the new business model should be focused on. And to me, that's a whole new area of white space that we're yet to explore. Melinda, well, I, I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I'm sure that uh, you know you're you're trying to uh, you know juggle you know five watermelons with one hand uh, with all these different <laughs> projects that you're working on. Um, yes, indeed. You know, thank you so much for your time, uh, and I'm, I'm so glad that uh, we got to interact at this conference. And um, I look forward to staying in touch and, and learning more from you in the future. Absolutely, Harry. And uh, look, you know, for, for all your listeners out there, I mean, this is one of those podcasts you just can't miss. It's been an honor for me, Harry. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll be bumping into each other uh, much more often. So thank you. Thanks. And that's it for this episode. Join me for the next episode of this special series of AI machine learning and analytics applied to drug discovery and development, where I speak to Dr. Shurjal Baxi, who is the medical director at Flatiron Health. We will discuss how technology can help create real-world evidence needed not only to just achieve better outcomes with patients utilizing existing approaches, but accelerate research into new areas. If you enjoyed Moneyball Medicine, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is greatly appreciated. Hope you join us next time. Until then, farewell.